This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, I'm Matt Cholley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Coming up on today's episode, Throwback Thursdays, where we speak to a politician of the past for lessons about the present. Today, Estelle Morris, who quit as Education Secretary under Tony Blair because she thought she wasn't up to the job. A lovely, fascinating interview with someone who's literally been there and done that. Plus, the columnists Manveen Rana and Matthew Holhouse on flip-flops and flip charts. And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can join me live for Politics Rather Boring Bits on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. Labour won't be making promises we can't keep or commitments that we can't pay for. I can announce today... Labour's Climate Investment Pledge. An additional £28 billion of capital investment in our country's green transition for each and every year of this decade. On the £28 billion, we are doubling down. We're not backing off. We intend to deliver that. I can't tell you on what day of what week we will deliver that. Well, even since then, the costs of government borrowing, the co- cost of government debt have uh, increased. And look, my, if there's one thing that I hope voters know about me is that I will never play fast and loose with the public finances. How much you can spend is determined by the health of the economy, which is clearly in a challenging position, and our own fiscal rule. And that's where the £28 billion comes in, that investment that's desperately needed. That's where the £28 billion comes in, desperately needed, desperately needed, desperately needed. We all remember where we were that day in September 2021. Like the moon landings, the assassination of JFK, when Blur beat Oasis. We all remember where we were when Rachel Weaves made her £28 billion pledge. And now, it's gone. A huge, huge shock. And no bigger shock than to the man who just this week promised 
we're going to need investment. That's where the 28 billion comes in, that investment that's desperately needed for that um, mission. So we remember Monday, September the 27th, 2021 to Thursday, February the 8th, 2024. An additional £28 billion of capital investment in our country's green transition for each and every year of this decade. You had a good run. Taken too soon. Flip-flops flying at half-mast over Times Towers. The £28 billion pledge, always in our hearts. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Manveen Rana, host of the Stories of Our Times podcast, is here. And today, someone called Matthew is from The Economist, Matthew Holhouse. Matthew, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Very well. Very well. I just, any day where Barry Gardner is all over the news uh, is a good day as far as I'm concerned. I feel, I feel like I've woken up five years ago. Uh, we, you know, it was back, back in 2018 again. Uh, it's nice, nice to hear Barry. It's always good to hear from Barry. And the reason Barry's in the news, of course, is because of Keir Starmer finally, formally, scrapping Labour's pledge to invest £28 billion a year in, in, in green infrastructure after months and months of speculation about whether or not it would survive. In fact, this was him... <laughs> Just on Monday this week, speaking to uh, Kate McCann from Times Radio, where he was still talking about the figure. In order to get there, we will need a number of things. Um, we're going to have to get to grips with the tough decisions on planning, because planning gets in the way um, of that target. Um, we're going to have to have a proper industrial strategy with our partners. We're going to have to deal with the grid, which is far too mm -hmm. slow connecting up. And we're going to need investment. That's where the £28 billion comes in, that investment that's desperately needed for that um, mission. Um, how big a problem will this be, Matthew? I mean, they clearly, there's two, two schools of thought within the Labour Party. And what, if they are indeed going to drop it, they've weighed up that the... The, the the risk of having a big £28 billion size target on your back for the Tories to keep kicking, that is more risky than looking like a flip-flopper who doesn't believe in anything. I mean, it's, it's, it, it has been extraordinarily slow. I you know, remember sort of interviewing Rachel Reeves in November 22. So after the mini-budget, before the sort of Jeremy Hunt rescue budget, where she, you know, she was pretty clear about her sort of scepticism about the, the affordability of this. We're now 14 months on. Um, you know, there was a there was an easier political window in which to, you know, can this thing, if that's what they feel is necessary to do, it, which would be much easier to sort of say, look, you know, the Conservative Party have destroyed public finances. Um, so, 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 so the way they've prevaricated on, on this uh, is, is, is pretty extraordinary. It doesn't really speak, you know, very promisingly about what it might look like in, in government, whereas the pace of decisions is much quicker. Um, on the other side of the argument, I mean, I'm I'm rather sort of sceptical about some of the the um, narrative that this is as a you know a great disaster for climate policy because I I've always been pretty sceptical about whether the 28 billion policy, as conceived, was ever really a, a very very good way of, of delivering um, sort of decarbonisation. I mean, it, it's very very heavily geared towards big subsidies for manufacturers in the hope of creating lots of jobs in Britain. Now that tends to be a really sort of 
expensive way of creating a small number of jobs, not a particularly efficient way of, of actually sort of reducing your emissions. You know, it'd be better to sort of give subsidies to, to consumers so people can buy heat pumps. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a mess politically. Uh, I, I don't think it's sort of the disaster in terms of a sort of decarbonisation project that, that some of the um, some of those commentary suggests. I think it's probably a, a window to think about a, a more effective and efficient way to do this. Let's just have a little listen then too, because obviously um, this this becomes a, le- a very big Labour story, and we will no doubt hear from more Labour people later. But this was Barry Gardner speaking to Times Radio this morning. I think it's economically illiterate. I think it's environmentally irresponsible, and I think it's politically jejune. What people in this country need, for God's sake, we've had Boris Johnson, we've had Liz Truss, we've had Rishi Sunak. People are crying out for some leadership in this country. And I'm afraid this is not looking like leadership. This is looking like backing off. That's Labour MP, former Labour Environment Minister in the, in the Blair, Blair years, Barry Garner there. Excellent use of jejun. Uh, which you don't hear enough of that on the radio, Bambi. Yeah, it's a word that's not used enough in Westminster, I think. We should bring that back. Um, But, you know, I think there will be a lot of people hearing him thinking he's probably right. You know, this comes on the same day that we're hearing the Tories are backing away from a boiler tax. There is a sense that everyone has an eye on the next election. Nobody wants to be accused of... You know, everyone wants to be able to go into the election being able to hint however inauthentically, that they might cut taxes, even if they can't possibly, as we know, as the IMF has pointed out. So anyone sort of making expensive commitments on decarbonisation is going to be hauled over the coals by by the other side. And you know, the idea of boiler tax is obviously going to be, would be used in, in an election in a similar way. Um, but at the same time, you just think, who on earth is thinking about the long term? You know, we always sort of have the Chinese sort of saying... Um, uh, you know, people laugh at the idea of our sort of five-year democracies because yeah. you don't plan for the future. And I think this is a perfect example. You know, if, if decarbon, you know, if, if carbonisation, well, sorry, if the environment basically and climate change are an existential threat, you just think somebody in politics should be taking it seriously rather than playing a political sort of pinball with it. And actually, that that uh, the sense of um, we're taking decisions for the long term is also a felt like quite a strong political contrast to, you know, the Tory party have basically spent the last five years changing leaders. We're going to change the country or whatever. You know, that's sort of... Ironically, that's sort of what Rishi Sunak came out saying. You know, he was the change candidate who was thinking about the future, was thinking about the country, wasn't thinking about sort of the immediate political goals. And, And, you know, you're right, Keir Starmer sort of could put himself forward as the, we won't be constantly changing government and changing policy and causing the economy to crash overnight in the space of the time it takes for letters to decompose. You know, sort of, there was the sense that you could be planning for a future, and now there's just a a real sense of chaos where nobody seems to know where the money is coming from. But as a result, you know, what the policy is going to be. And I think the real danger of this, you know, Matthew's pointing out that a lot of this was sort of the promise of subsidies and, um, you know, deals for manufacturers. Industry doesn't know where the government is on any of its net zero plans, really. You know, whether anyone's committed to meeting them. And that makes it really hard to plan. It makes other countries who are being much more transparent about how they get to those aims, makes them a more appealing place to be investing. But I suppose also, uh, uh, if, if there were people who were looking at the polls, Matthew, and thinking, well, after all that uncertainty, it looks like it's going to be a Labour government, we can start making those decisions, start investing. And they went, now they're thinking, well, they've, they've, they've flip-flopped before they've even, they've even got in. Right. I mean, sort of the big 
pitch to investors that you get from Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves is that you know the Tories are in chaos, and with them you'll get ten years of stability and certainty. I mean that that's a very sort of attractive thing to promise. Uh, unfortunately, you know every prime minister promises that. Boris Johnson thought that he would be in for ten years and deliver a transformational government. You know, uh, it, it's not actually something that's necessarily within your uh, gift as a party, and I think this kind of proves it. I mean, I'm you know I'm not surprised they've junked it. I am. You know, you know, insofar as you know, Britain does sort of chronically sort of underinvest, and decarbonisation is essential, and it will cost lots of public money. But you know, this is a sort of shadow cabinet, which is you know just completely um, preoccupied with the task of winning the next election, uh, and you know it's sort of existential for them. And the history of British politics in the past thirteen years is that the Labour Party enters general elections with unfunded spending commitments and then the Conservative Party wins. Now, it, it's possible that the, um, you know, the state of the polls and the public dissatisfaction with the Conservative Party is, is now such that that rule no longer applies. But uh, it, 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 it would strike me as sort of heroically confident to think that that, that is no longer a risk. Um, and we, we saw, you know, Sunat yesterday did his, his new campaign advert where he had sort of this flip chart and the set the central concept of attack was the 28 billion so you know is it is it surprising that they've decided that they need to shut down this line of attack which you know sort of has worked against them in the past three general elections i, I don't think it's that surprising and yet the re and i spoke to caroline lucas earlier about this it, what this signals that both parties as you were saying Malvin, the, the tories rowing back on their plans to phase out uh, gas boilers. They clearly think there's votes in dialing back on the green stuff. While today we're told that January was the warmest ever recorded. Uh, it follows its seven months, eight months of record-breaking heat. Uh, the one and a half degree target was missed in twenty twenty-three. It sort of there seems like a real disconnect. The, the, the data keeps telling us that climate change is a problem, and yet. There's no one showing any leadership on it to make it a central purpose of the government to act. And instead, both parties have decided there's votes in being less green. I think that's the problem. The key word there is leadership. You know, I think every party can see in the run-up to an election that you get an immediate gain by promising people, you know, a marginal win. You will, you will, will cut your tax by... £10 and you're still feeling a bit richer. You won't have this added boiler tax if you haven't managed to change your, your boiler even with the financial incentives of, of swapping to, to a, a heat pump. Um, and and they're, sort of, they're basically relying on short-termism. What we haven't had in politics for an awfully long time is the kind of leadership that actually stands up and sort of says quite honestly to, to, to the country, look at the state we're in, think about what the most urgent priorities are, and we're going to commit to, to, to doing something about them because this, this is existential. You know, the, the world we, we live in is about to change. It's a really interesting message that's just come in from uh, uh, Nick in Hereford. said, let's face it, Matt, I'm hugely disappointed about the £28 billion climate U-turn, but it's not going to suddenly make me vote Tory. We need a change of government, and back to ground zero is looking a far better place when the Tories are taking us. So I suppose that ultimately is the... I mean, there are then questions about whether, and speaking to Caroline Lucas, the Greens in some areas, they are up against Labour, and if, you know, plus this cross, if you are worried about the environment, you know the Labour Party not sticking to it, they lose, I think it's about 1 in 10, 1 in 12 of their votes from 2019 currently going to the Greens. So it's not impossible that that, that causes them a problem. Um, well, let's move on because uh, uh, we'll, we'll find out at some point uh, exactly what they are or aren't going to do on the Green uh, pledge. Somebody's just <laughs> somebody just emailed in saying, uh, 
So, uh, Charlie says, until the announcement, I'm still naively hoping that Labour will come out swinging and not be backing out of the pledge, but explaining how it could work. I mean, that would be a brilliant twist, Charlie. But... I mean, to be fair, Keir Starmer was on Times Radio on Monday. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Saying, be back, using the word unwavering yeah. about, about this. Who knows? Desperately needed. Who knows? It feels like by, by the end of the day, we could be anywhere. But on the subject of uh, Keir Starmer flip-flopping, this is what got Rishi Sunak into trouble yesterday when he uh, was attacking the many, many areas where uh, Keir Starmer had uh, changed his mind about things, including a joke about uh, his changing position on uh, trans rights and uh, who is and isn't a woman. Well, this morning, Chris Philp, the uh, policing minister, uh, was speaking to Times Radio Breakfast. This obviously comes after Brianna Guy's, uh, sorry, Brianna Guy's uh, father uh, criticised Rishi Sunak for his comments. This was Chris Philp, the policing minister on Times Radio earlier. What he was saying was he was listing out a whole range of uh, different things or like f- five or ten different things where Keir Starmer has flip-flopped or U-turned. He mentioned Keir Starmer's flip-flopping on the trans issue as one of a list of things. He didn't make any reference to any individual, uh, and that is what the Prime Minister was was saying at PMQs yesterday. Actually, why don't we just listen to that? We're just hearing that Rishi Sunak has been talking about uh, what happened yesterday as well. Uh, Speaking to reporters, I think they must be on his visit to the dentist in uh, the southwest somewhere. He said it was sad and wrong to link his comments to the Brianna Jai case. He said, like everyone, I was completely shocked by Brianna's case. To have your child taken from you in such awful circumstances is almost impossible to come to terms with. And for Brianna's mum to talk with such empathy and compassion about that, I thought was inspiring and it showed the very best of humanity. But you that goes on, I've nothing but the most heartfelt sympathy for her entire family and friends. But to use that tragedy to detract from the very separate and clear point I was making about Keir Starmer's proven track record of multiple U-turns on major policies because he doesn't have a plan, I think is both sad and wrong, and it demonstrates the worst of politics. Mamie, what have you made of all this? Oh, I think it's... I mean, the whole thing was was crass, unedifying. I think it's exactly what turns people off politics. This sort of sense that, you know, what goes on in Parliament is all about political point scoring. It is the punch and judy we used to talk about. Um, And it doesn't really... It's as if people there don't understand the gravitas of what they're saying and how it affects people's lives. Um, You know, it's particularly crass that it was on a day where Brianna's mother was there. But even without that... I sort of think, you know, that that statement he's just made is actually very confusing. You know, he refers to Brianna there as her, whereas in his own previous statements, you know, he doesn't seem to recognise, mm. um, you know, trans people as having sort of, you know... And, and the debate that's gone on the Tory part about children and when, it, when they can exactly, and can't change Exactly, argument. so, you know, sort of whilst sort of being very sympathetic to uh, the parents in this tragedy, you know, he... He's actually very lost with his own sort of stance on on Brianna. I think that's the difficulty. Um, and you know, we we said this last week. The things that get said in Parliament, as a sort of political ding dong, often have real life implications. You know, people will take that. It get ten, ends up on the internet. It gets passed around, and you realise that there is then sort of mass hate in society for people, you know, of various minorities, including the trans community, and it feeds that. And I think that's the danger. So you know, in in order to make a joke. At Keir Starmer's expense, you know, you're using a very sensitive subject. Whether or not um, Brianna's mother was there, it's still, and you know, I just think it's a very inappropriate thing to be point scoring over. The, um, I mean, I felt Matthew that I mean, the the main problem was was an incomprehensible joke. You needed to know 
that Keir, this was based on Keir Starmer's evolving position on this. Look, I mean, when we were doing PMQ's Unpacked yesterday, we actually had Caroline Wheeler in, who did the interview with Keir Starmer, where he said 99.9% of women don't have a penis, which then became... Well, the, she got it, but nobody the, else The punchline, did. exactly. So we had to sort of unknot un all of that uh, in order for you to even get to the point of understanding what on earth he was... He was on about. I, I mean, I personally don't think it was a transphobic joke. It was just a bad joke at a bad moment, and he probably should probably shouldn't have said it. I think the fact that Keir Starmer reacted. In fact, if you even looked at the front bench, Rachel Weaves and definitely Rachel Weaves looked like Angela Reda as well. Was sort of laughing along with it. It was all part of the knockabout until Keir Starmer stood up and uh, and talked about it. And I just. I don't know what you think, Matthew. I think I'm very, very nervous about people who've had terrible things happen to them being dragged into the political debate thing. And obviously, it's entirely up to them if they want to sit down and have a cup of tea and a photo op with Keir Starmer. But the fact that they, they weren't doing that with the... I just I, The whole thing just makes me very squeamish when people who want to try and get a message across find themselves being a political football like this. I mean, it's... It... it Clearly, where you cause sort of, you know, offence and hurt to people, particularly somebody um, in Brianna's mother's case, uh, you know, it's it's appropriate to apologise, but he can't. And the reason he can't apologise is that he makes this joke every single week. You know, yeah. we've probably heard it a hundred thousand times from the dispatch box, and so he can't apologise on it in the way that you know Gordon Brown had to apologise after um, he sort of said the wrong thing about Gillian Duffy. Because this is his strategy. You know, it, it, is, it is an explicit Sunak strategy to punch the Labour Party on this issue week in, week out, whatever sort of collateral damage that may do to uh, people in the real world. Mm. So, so he's, 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 he's boxed in on that. Uh, and, it, you know, it's a box of his own making. Um, I thought Jackie Doyle Price's interview on Times Radio last night made a really good point on this. Now, she comes at this from the perspective of being sort of, you know, very concerned about the sort of rights and protections for, you know, what, what you know, sometimes called sort of natal women or biological women. Uh, but her point was that those concerns that she has, which, you know, are, are shared by, you know, a lot of people uh, on the Labour benches as well, actually, as the Tory benches, have a genuine policy concern, which they would like to see a serious and carefully constructed policy response to and her argument was that this knockabout which we have every week effectively trivializes those concerns so it's you know it, it's it's the, the approach that the prime minister has taken it is i know we say you know parliament is sort of endemically you know part politics is at its worst let's be honest it's this is this is a conservative party strategy and it's the prime minister who's leading it yeah uh, you know, the, the point she was making that that approach is is undermining the, the policy response and the serious debate for everybody, I, I think, was a really valid one. That's basically the problem with the culture war, isn't it? You know, they've used it as a, as a great sort of political yeah, yeah. tool, but it just trivialises very serious matters and it does allow, you know, it allows politicians to begin with to use language yeah. about people who are... And it's a deliberate choice already, because, yeah. like I said yesterday, there were 30 examples of flip-flopping and all that. You could focus on those and not be dragging, you know, that, the, the culture war thing in. Uh, here's a question. Is this actually the worst thing that Rishi Sunak's done this week? 
Hi, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in the economy and the plan that we're working towards. But before then, I wanted to take you back to the context that we found ourselves in. We all remember COVID and the enormous... Oh, well, 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 that's enough of that. That's enough of that. Two and a half minutes of him with a flip chart. Manveen. I mean, it just made me think it's going to be a really long and painful election campaign, isn't it? Um, I, he's just not very good at these. He just looks slightly awkward and very sort of painfully self-aware. And he's boring. Yeah. And that doesn't help. So, no. it, I mean, I, I can't wait for the election to be over. This is going to it's going to go on and on. We're going to have to cover every minute of it. And it's going to be dull. Uh, Matthew, the, tr the house, the house was particularly bleak. He drew a house. <laughs> and even yeah, the house yeah. looks sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, we're always saying we want authenticity. We're always saying we want authenticity from our politicians. You know, we want them to be their real selves. Well, Rishi Sunak with a flip chart doing some graphs uh, is is the authentic <laughs> Rishi Sunak. You know, and, and you, you know you you got to work with the product you got. But um, I think it's really interesting. Right? It's it's really worth watching the advert because what what I think the story he tells is like probably the best story the Tories can tell at the moment. So the story he tells in this flip chart presentation, you know, like like David Brent at the Office Away Day type thing, <laughs> is that, you know, we've got really high inflation because of the war in Ukraine and and, and and COVID and it's come down the Conservatives and Labour will put it at risk with their 28 billion pound. Like that's that's a perfectly sort of sensible story for the Tories to to tell at this stage in the game. I'm not I'm not saying it will win them in the election, it probably won't, but it's sort of coherent. The, the weird thing watching this is that that would have been a really good video to do in like October 22 when <laughs> Rishi Sunak came to power and yeah, sort of yeah. repeat every single day. You know, so we, we all remember sort of sitting through the, the Cameron administration and him and Osborne had a really yeah. clear story on the economy that they built their entire project around, which they hit day after day after day. Every single policy announcement fed back into this story. It didn't um, fix the roof. I, I, it didn't fix the roof. Right, the deficit, deficit, exactly, deficit, exactly. deficit. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. We're now how many months out from an election? You know, is it eight? Yeah. Uh, possibly. And I'm watching this going, oh, okay, so so that's the story that you're trying to tell. Right, <laughs> I understand where day one is now. Yeah, and also, I mean, there were many problems with it. As somebody pointed out, after I tweeted a picture, a, a ridiculous picture of the sad house last night, uh, somebody pointed out, why has it got two lamps so close together? It's not the most pressing thing, but <laughs> it's very badly lit, very bad internal lighting. Matthew Holhouse from The Economist and Manveen Rana from Stories of Our Times, which you can find wherever you're listening to this. Up next, it's Throwback Thursdays with Estelle Morris. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. It was the recent A-level crisis which put most pressure on Estelle Morris as Education Secretary. If I'm really honest with myself, I've not enjoyed it as much and I just don't think I'm as good at it as I was at my other job. Yes, throwback Thursdays. Well, I speak to the politicians of the past to find out about the lessons for the present. Today, a lovely chat with Estelle Morris. Now, Baroness Morris, of course. The former Labour MP who was Education Secretary under Tony Blair, but famously stood down because she felt she just wasn't up to the job. Imagine that. We discuss whether she regrets that decision, the advice she's giving to Labour's current Shadow Education Secretary, Bridget Phillipson, and with both her father, Charles Morris, and uncle, Alf Morris, being Labour MPs, why politics was a family business. It was part of family life, but I did enjoy it. So it could have been part of family life and I rebelled against it, but I didn't. Because actually that's what you hear a lot of people who've, yes. who've got parents who are MPs. I think the last thing I want to do, if you see it up, that, that up close, what was it that, that drew you so strongly into it then? I loved listening to the conversation. In those days, I think you have to remember also that the political party was part of the social fabric of the local community. So if I, if I look back to my childhood, the Labour Party was the place where you, you went for the, the hot pot supper or the beetle drive or the music evening. And of course, everyone in our neighbourhood was Labour. That's the way it was in those days. It was very divided. So it was, it was just around me and... Um, I was brought up quite tribally in, in that sense. But I have a younger sister who brought up in the same household, four years younger than me, but never, ever joined the Labour Party. She was interested in politics, but always said that she kept the family's feet on the ground by asking the difficult <laughs> questions when we were being too tribal. And I'm sure this, she voted Labour, let me assure you. I was going to say, I was about to ask no, that. No, no, she, she didn't, voted she didn't go too She wild. just wasn't a party politician. <laughs> yeah. she, I think that's the way to put it. So then you, you worked as a PE teacher, humanities really, teacher. Not no. really, no, I didn't. It's really interesting that I went to college to train to be a PE teacher. I dropped it oh. after one year. And no matter how many times I told the press that that was the case, they completely ignored me and would much prefer to write it up as a PE teacher, but predominantly a, a humanities social science teacher. And you did that for a, a decent stretch of time, from 74 to 92. That's a big old... It's a proper job. It was a, a proper, proper job. job, yeah. So and and it, it wasn't an easy... It was a good school, but it was an inner-city uh, comprehensive school in the centre of Coventry. So it wasn't an easy ride in that sense. But that, that matters to me, actually. It was a real job. And um, I learnt a lot from it and did it to the best of my ability at the time, I suppose. So what happens then at the late 80s, early 90s? Is the tipping point for you to think, OK, I am going to throw my hat into the ring, I'm going to stand for Parliament? Yes, I either had to or I thought I'd m miss the boat. I became an elected councillor slightly earlier than that, in um, I think it was 1979. I was a bit arrogant about this. I, I always thought, I'm not going to be an elected councillor. I want to be an MP. This is what I'm saying to myself, you know, from my early 20s. And then I got very involved in my local Labour Party, obviously. And I did stand to be a councillor. It was the best thing I ever did. And it really made me realise how arrogant I'd been about politics takes place in Westminster. And it taught me that relationship. It's the local authorities that are delivering the policies. But it also was a great introduction into understanding how much the system 
doesn't work for some people and how elected politicians can make it work. Just ordinary casework, holes in roads, people needing houses. And that really did teach me a part of politics that would have escaped me, I think, had I not done local council work. But then the truth was that I'd got to be a senior teacher and I either really did have to go and apply for promotion, which would have been a deputy head, or I had to really try to get to be an MP. And I thought I was old enough then to do it. So I, did, I gave it a go. Without being cynical, was it also partly that going into the 92 election... Labour were expected to do well, possibly win. You'd, you'd, you'd been teaching through the wilderness years of Labour being sort of deep in opposition. And that was a sort of point where Labour looked like they were coming back. No, I mean, I tried in 87 and to get selected <laughs> for a seat. I mean, what, what, what was in... By, by 1990, I was sort of um, early 30s. No, and don't forget, the seat I fought was a Tory Hell seat. So it, it wasn't an easy ride. I always have this thing, and I say this to the kids, sometimes children, when you're doing talks in schools... You know, they say, um, give us some tips on getting into politics. How can I get into politics? I always give them the same answer. I just say, say yes to everything and take every opportunity. Because I was really conscious that if I grew old and had never become an MP, but had given it a go, I think I could have lived with that. If I'd have grown old and never even tried, I know I would have regretted it. And I got selected, but for a, a really difficult seat, Birmingham Yardley in those days, it was Tory held, but the... Um, the, the, the really the main opponents by them were the Liberal Democrats, so it was a it was a three way seat. So in that election in 1992, you win by 162 by 162 votes exactly. Yes. But a win's a win. A win's a, win's a, win. a win. A win's a win. You're triumphant. Yes, yes, that's exactly. But you're watching the TV exactly right, and you're watching John Major return to Downing Street. I feel deeply honoured to have been given the opportunity of continuing the work I've started in the last 16 months. What was that like? It was weird because I genuinely did think we'd win. Look, looking back, people are always very good at saying, ah, I knew at that moment that we'd lose. And, you know, the, the Sheffield rally and that. We're all right! But no-one actually said that at the time. It was a surprise. But I was always conscious that my, the group I was in, which was people who went in in 92 for the first time, we were slightly protected against the hurt of Labour having lost because we were there and we had the excitement of winning. I was always conscious of that, that there was a cohort who thought that they potentially might have been a minister. And for them, it must have been really difficult. And we came in, most of us quite young, most of us, well, all of us very enthusiastic. And we did have some of that protection from that disappointment. Obviously, there's a big conversation going on right now about the, the coming election this year. Is it going to be like 92? Is obviously what Richard Sunak's pinning his hopes on the former Chancellor just getting over the line. Or is it a 97-style landslide? Tell us what it was like being in that, that run-up to the 97 election. 97 election. The run-up, the five years to the run-up, was absolutely fascinating and a marvellous opportunity for those who, was, uh, who were young and new. I mean, it's exactly the same as it is now. You know, you're not allowed to say when we win, you're not allowed to think that we will win, you're allowed to think that we might win, and therefore you have to get prepared. But looking back, and I've nothing to compare it with because I wasn't there in 87, but there was a sense of excitement and real work being done. I was lucky enough to get in the education team just as a, an interested person, and then I was the education whip. And I think it was only in retrospect that I understood that it was a party preparing for government, 
but dare not saying that it might actually happen. The election's not over till it's over. That's the reason why we're keeping up this fight for every vote in every single corner of the country between now and when polls close. And what I also learned after the people who want to talk to you, I thought everyone always wanted to talk to you. It was only when people didn't want to talk to us later on, <laughs> you know, that you realise. And um, I sense that now from the outside world, that people want to talk to us. People have a real interest in who wins and it's part of their business. I know they're approaching Labour now, but what I see absolutely replicated is that determination not to take it for granted and not to assume you can win. The Tories will never give up on power. That's not who they are. So no let up, no complacency, fight for every vote. You get, And it's not just externally, it's actually internally as well. It's a, mind, it's a it. mindset thing. It's a mindset yeah. thing, yeah. So you're right, then uh, in 97 you become a, a junior schools minister. I did, yeah. Drawing obviously on your background as, yeah. a, as a teacher and so on. And then, you know, and then you go from junior minister to minister of state for school standards. And then by the 2001 election you become secretary of state for I education. Did. Secretary of State for Education must be all of your Christmases come at once. It was more unbelievable because the phrase all your Christmases comes at once makes it sound as though you've been looking forward to it and, and wanting it. I just never, I never thought I'd get it, which is a problem. So it, I think it was more shock and surprise. And um, we, we've got a strange system because you have to read the runes. No one actually says to you, if we win... You know, we're considering making your cabinet minister. No one has that conversation with you. So your mind, especially if you're fighting a marginal seat, mm. which I was, I was always just about to lose Yardley. And so part of the protection, as you you might be losing Yardley, and I loved I loved the constituency, I loved that job, was not to let your mind think I might be Secretary of State after the election. And that was a huge error on my part. Um, my advice to anybody now who's anywhere in that group that might be a, a cabinet minister or minister is absolutely think yourself into it because there's no time after to think yourself into it. And I think that was a, one of the biggest mistakes I made, that to protect myself against losing the seat, I didn't allow myself to think that I might be Secretary of State. And although I knew most of the portfolio very well because I'd been in the department, actually thinking through those decisions as to special advisers what your first 100 days are going to be like. They're absolutely necessary. And so that, that's always my advice now. And just deal with the disappointment. If it doesn't happen, deal with the disappointment. And perhaps, you know, if I say to anyone I'm interviewing Estelle Morris, the thing that they best remember you for probably is your decision well, about 18 months afterwards to resign. Yes. Not because you've been caught up in a scandal. No, I Not because not. you've done anything wrong on your watch, but because you felt you weren't up to the job. If I'm really honest with myself, I've not enjoyed it as much and I just don't think I'm, good, I'm as good at it as I was at my other job. I'm not having second best in a post that's as important as this. And um, that's why I've made the decision. Which is pretty unusual, if not unique, certainly in the time I've been That's why politics. people remember that's it, because it's 20 it. years ago. Tell us about your thought process then, because it's not, again, it's not like there's a great wave of pressure. No, there wasn't. And it's much there easier there to wasn't. do nothing than to make a decision. Yes, it is. That's, that's true. You are right. It's not a surprise when you say, when you mention my name, that's what people say. I understand that, but I do wish I was remembered for the things I did as well, and that's a that's a consequence of that. But, you know, never mind. That, that That's the way it is. I don't know. There wasn't one of my friends or political colleagues 
or anyone in the department who said I should go. But it was a really strong feeling in me that it was what I ought to do. And I think what happened, it's very difficult to to look back because lots of things happened. And it was a particular point. I can almost tell you the time of the day, 4.30 on a Monday. I know when it happened. And it was just a switch. And it was though your mind said, given where you are and everything that's happened and the way you feel about it, I just couldn't see my way out. I couldn't see my way out of the difficulty I felt I was in. And I felt that I no longer knew the rules of the game. I didn't quite know why I was in such an awful position. And therefore, that makes it more difficult to get out. The whole thing started because when the A-level results came out in the summer, it emerged that the assessment bodies had altered the grade boundaries of the A-levels. And the allegation was um, that it was to fit a profile that better suited the government. And um, if that was true, it was nothing to do with the department. It was certainly nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. I'd had no meetings, whatever. But rightly so, you carry the can. It is you who goes on the Today programmes and the programmes like this to answer. And I did what I could. But you put the inquiry in place. You you line yourself up for all the interviews. You do the press conferences, and it kept going. It kept going, and I did not know what else to do. I did not know what else to do except wait for the inquiry to report. But politics isn't like that. You can't leave a gap. And if you leave a gap while you're waiting for a report, other things happen. And then what I think happened was everything else I did got seen through the prism of the A-level. And I found it really difficult, if I'm really honest. And I think probably I got a bit of a thin skin. But I was very conscious that I didn't want a thick skin. I thought part of the reasons... I was a half-good politician is because I was a good listener and I had a reasonably thin skin and I didn't want to be the sort of politician that got through it because they didn't feel what the world was saying to them. And I found that quite difficult to handle. I couldn't... My head couldn't get a way out of it. Mm. Um, My my heart wasn't in a very happy place. And I just knew that I had to take control of the situation. And And I did, and it was the right thing to do. And I've never regretted it. It was the right thing to do. So tell me what happens then, that 4.30 on a Monday afternoon, when you decide yes, this is what in you're the, going in to do. in my own head. What do you do? Do you go and see I rang Tony the Blair? Prime Minister, yeah. yeah, I rang him. Did he try to talk you out of it? He's brilliant. He's, he, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. He said, have you made your mind up? I said, I have. And I think he, I think he knew I had. And I think he's, he's a good enough politician to know that I couldn't do that job feeling as I did. Mm. And that's quite, that's quite an important point. I would have got over it in months, but no one's going to give me months. Mm. But where he was good, he, I, I talked to him about how he managed. I said, you know, how do you manage this? And I talked to him about strains and stresses of the jobs we had. And um, we talked for about half an hour and he was good. He was good. I wonder if you think, because obviously, you know, a different politician gets into trouble every week and they sort of, most of them ride it out or eventually they have to go. Do you think it's got worse since you were since then? I mean, 2001, 2002, I mean, there was rolling news then, but not on the same extent. And the no same, social media. No social, no media, social media. You know, websites constantly updating. There were just more outlets now. It's not just BBC, TV and radio. No, that's and, right. And all of that. Putting party politics to one side, you envy those who find themselves... In the same situation now? No, 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 I don't, not, not really. You're right about my years of Secretary of State. I always see them as 97 till 2002. Mm. It's just that I had different roles within it. Yeah. Because we, we we always think that that's that top, only the top job that matters. 
And I actually enjoyed the Minister of State far better and achieved far more than I did as a Secretary of State. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because yes, it's it the is. same, th- same two of, of journalism. Absolutely you know, the, right. the, the people who are good reporters can make terrible editors, or people who are, yes. you know, good football players make terrible managers. You know, it's the, a different job. It's different Look jobs. At Bobby Charlton, yeah, you know. Different um, skill set. Best football I've ever had at Manchester United, but he never really did make it on the management. Yeah. It's so interesting, though. Mm, mm. But you're, you've kept up your... You know, obviously, you've kept your... You're now in the House of Lords. You've I kept am. up your interest on uh, education. Yes, so I wanted to ask you about a few of those things. In fact, talking about talking yourself into the job, are you talking to Bridget Phillipson? What's your advice yeah, she's to very, her she's very right inclusive. Now? Yeah, I mean, for, Secretary, Shadow Secretary of State come yeah. and go as well, to yeah. tell you the truth. You know, there's, there's been a line. And some, in all honesty, consult you more than others. But Bridget, she's very consultative and um, makes sure she does consult those of us who are education ministers, as do her team. I rate her very highly, actually. I'm quite optimistic. And what does she need to be clear in her head before a general election comes to avoid some of the things that you were sort of talking about? I think she needs to know which policies she's going to announce quickly. There's some policies that are... It's a terrible phrase, but they're called quick wins, as you know. Mm. It's a terrible phrase because it sounds as though they've got no substance. But they're, they're quick, they can be implemented quickly. And what they are is a sign of your direction of travel. And I think you've got to have some of those. But then I think you've got to put in place some longer, more solid work, like the curriculum review, which is announced. And where I think she's done that right, she's not done a rushed curriculum review and announced it now. She's taking her time, and I don't know whether she intends to announce anything before any general election. But the other thing I would say is think about the department how she wants to organise it. Think about those she wants around her and make sure they are people she trusts and she wants Mm. and not other bits of the Labour Party or government think would be good for her. And the last thing is absolutely think up what her communication strategy with teachers is going to be. What's she going to do? She can't see them all. She can't visit every school. I would absolutely in that first week have a communication strategy with teachers rather than two teachers through the press. There's there's just a difference there. It's really interesting, that. So looking back, I mean, it's a tough old job being a teacher right now. Yeah. A tough old job being a politician. Yeah. Which would you rather be doing right uh, now today? Teachers often say that. I think they wanted me to say at one point that, when I was a minister, that um, it was tougher being a teacher than a politician because that would have suited them well. But they're tough for different reasons. Mm. In my 18 years teaching, there was usually one group or one set of children I found difficult and there's nothing quite like walking over the pl- across the playground to teach that group of kids because you are in that room with them for potentially two hours, whether you like it or not. Now, that is really, really difficult. The pressures of being a politician, the hours are longer, the pressure of not knowing what's going to be in the media the next day, not knowing what's going to come up. So that's a big pressure as well. But they are very, very different mm. pressures. I don't think I would have stayed in teaching Mm. for another 18 years. I think I needed the break. And I'm very, very glad that that break took me into politics. I wouldn't for the world have missed being Secretary of State, even though it didn't bring me great joy. But I wouldn't for the world have missed doing it. Esther Moyes, it's really good to see you. Thanks so much for coming in on Times Radio. Thank you very much for asking me along. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of Politics at the Boring Bits. Don't forget you can get in touch by emailing me, matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.